Today's lesson comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1, uh, 13 through 21. You may follow along your pew Bible on page 238 in the New Testament section. We look at this first, uh, first Peter as is a letter that is written to the first century church. And we uh, now in the 21st century church listen for God's word as it continues to be relevant uh, to us today. And what surprises me as we continue to read through this is how relevant it is. And if we recall, 1 Peter was written to mostly Gentiles. And they were living in that Roman era, era, era area. And they're in Roman and um, it's controlled by the Roman Greco world. And their fear, the Romans' fear was that this new religion, this religion of Christianity, would cause upheaval within the house and within the house that would trickle out into society. And their fear was that this would mess up the, the way they have created peace through power and some being on top, some being on the bottom. And their word of this new religion would create upheaval within their kingdom that they have created. And so I invite us now to listen to God's word. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be intimidated but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight lives, was saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as appeal to God for good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers made subject to him. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. In his blog, Ponder Anew, Jonathan Agner writes an open letter to the church offering his thoughts on what people in their 20s are looking for in the community of faith. Don't target us, he writes. In doing so, you've marketed and advertised yourself to oblivion. We're left with a homogeneous congregation of approximately the same ages and backgrounds who are just there for what they can get out of church. No wonder we've left, he continues. Just be the church. Be yourself. Use your old, regular old liturgy. Offer your regular old sacraments. Tear down the silos. <coughs> Save us from ourselves. Cast a wide net and let everyone in. Trust me, we're more likely to show up when we don't feel like we're fishing, fish snapping for bait. 
We don't need more youth group lock-ins, more Sunday school options for each age group, more senior adult outings like on beekeeping or genealogy. We need to look into the faces of the young and the old, the rich and the poor, of different colors and races and ethnic backgrounds, so that we can learn to see Jesus' face that don't look like us. So we can remember that God's kingdom is bigger than our safe suburban bubble. We need community, not bound, bound together by age or economic status or skin color or individual likes or dislikes, but wrought with the hammering of the nails of the wooden cross. Week after week, season after season, year after year, let us participate in the drama of the gospel. It's not supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to produce intense emotional response every week. It's a discipline, remembrance of who we were, who we are, and who we ought to be. We need this. We need these heartfelt rituals in our lives to keep us returning to the font of grace to mark our way back home. Throughout the first 23 years of this century, the church seems to be apologizing for who she is, masking our identity with everything from we believe in whatever it is, just come, please come, and to everything to else, everything must fit into a nice, night, neat, tidy category. We at times, we apologize with entertainment. It can be seen in worship services or coffee shops or lock-ins. And the church, as apologist, isn't new. The author of 1 Peter seemed to be concerned with this as well. Verse 15 says, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. In other words, don't be apologetic for what you believe. Instead, be ready to tell others about the hope that lives within inside of you. We do not know if these first century Christians were being questioned by their faith by private citizens or public officials, probably a mixture of both. Either way, the advice given is this. Think through your answer. Don't be embarrassed or frightened or lack enthusiasm about your faith and hope that swells up on the side of you. And when revealing this hope, do it with gentleness, with grace, with respect. Nothing is more alienating or obnoxious as a Christian witnessing with arrogance and condescension, rudeness, or intrusion. This letter says, know your audience, know your space. And that sounds like really good advice. It's great advice. Until, un until you get to that next sentence that says, and when you're maligned, not if, but when. When you're maligned and abused, the sentence right there will make any church whether that be the first century church or the 21st century church, want to become apologist. Perhaps the question for us here in year 2023 in Lillington, North Carolina, is exactly what type of suffering and sacrifice are we talking about before we move any further? And to answer that question, 
I think we should start at the end of our reading today and work our way back up, beginning with baptism. Baptism, Peter writes, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God of, of good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. In the first century, there were Jewish tradition of cleansing. We saw this with John the Baptist when he invited people into the Jordan River. What the early church is to be reminded of, what we are to be reminded of, is that our baptism is deeper than just cleansing the dirt off ourselves. In our baptism, we are reminded that God takes the initiative. Long before any of us are able to choose Jesus, baptism makes it clear that Jesus chooses us. The importance of remembering our baptism is that remember that the purpose of baptism was not of one of a conversion. We do not save ourselves. God saves us. The difference between the two of those is great. If the journey of following Jesus begins with our choice, we'll always be in doubt. We will worry, do I have enough faith? Was I right to follow? Who am I to follow? Then this turns into, how do we define suffering? Uh, What sacrifices do the church need to make and, and not make? And that begins to think that we are the saviors at that point. We save ourselves, we believe. We save the church. We are the saviors of the world, which then leads to our apologies. But when our journey begins with God's initiation towards us, then all those doubts, which are not bad, by the way, then all those doubts about Jesus, about living in community, about who is and who is not included, about sacrifices and suffering, all become opportunities to discover more about the faithfulness and hope that God calls us to be unapologetic about. Whether our parents carried us down the aisle, and whether we walked down as a teenager or as an adult, baptism was never about our initiation. It was about God's love that was so strong on us that nothing can remove it. No matter how far we run, or how much we try to deny it, or or how apologetic we are to receive it, God's love is there, relentlessly working in our lives to perceive the world into a completely new lens than what this world offers. Father Greg Bull a Jesuit priest in L.A. who works for the help people escape the gang life, was set to baptize George. It was a big day for George. George understood the baptism was a symbol of new life. He wanted that of many levels. He was nearing the end of his time of probation camp and had just completed his GED exam. George was thriving. And this, unsecured by the demands of gang life, Bull was ready to baptize him to this Christian faith, new life, new possibilities, the days of guns, the days of violence, long behind George. Tragically, the night before his baptism, his brother Cisco was walking home when a rival gang shot Cisco dead. George did not know about his brother's death the next morning. 
Father Boyle debated. What do you do? What do you say? Do you go to him beforehand? Do you wait till after? He shows up at camp to find George's huge smile, waving his GED certificate. I got my GED. I got my GED. He kept yelling, just beaming with pride. The bull knew. The bull had received the news the night before and could barely sleep. Father Greg Bull baptized George that day in a packed mess hall of uh, Probation camp in a borrowed iron crisp white shirt and a thick black tie. George answered the question of baptism. What's your name? George Martinez, he responded, overflowing with confidence. And George, what do you ask for to God's church? Baptism. He could barely contain this smile. Boy reflects, it's the most difficult baptism I've ever done in my entire life. For as I poured over that water, George's head, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I knew surely afterwards I would walk George outside and tell him this tragic news. I put my arms around George, and told him the sad truth. George, your brother Cisco, was killed last night. And all the air left George. Left his air, his body completely as he fell to the bench and just sat there. His face sought refuge in the open palms and just sobbed quietly. In complete astonishment. Boyle recalls, was grief was all there was. I had been in these situations many times before. And usually it was not just grief. Usually there was both rage and revenge. There was none of that with George. It's as if his baptism had already miraculously taken hold. God's initiative coming with the promises of love creating a new identity in the most horrific place. His baptism didn't make Cisco death any sense. It didn't bring Cisco back to life. And sometimes suffering with Christ is just that. Sitting in solidarity of the world's pain. Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer was once asked what he thought was the most radical and unapologetic claim that the Christian faith makes. His response, the most radical claim that Christians make is, together we are the body of Christ. When we try to follow Christ living in this solidarity with the world's pain, instead of spending our lives running from the necessary suffering that we encounter through various forms of suffering or used on the Easter terms through that crucifixion. Yes, pain can be physically discomfort. We all know that. But suffering, as is described in Scripture, as is written in Scripture, comes from our resistance and our denial and our sense of injustice about all the pain in the world. This is why Bonhoeffer says, together, as the body, we are the body of Christ, is the most radical of all the Christian proclamations. And while your parents walking you down the aisle in front of the church, or you walking yourself to the front of the church to be baptized, is the most unapologetic and radical proclamation 
that you and your parents have ever made. Because our baptism means that we are part of the body of Christ. And along with God's initiating love, this means that we have put aside our private agendas. And it means that we are totally in solidarity with all the pain and the suffering of the world. Which means we turn the other cheek. We love our enemies. We pray for those who torment us. It's in those very moments of suffering that we follow the lead of our Savior, Jesus Christ, where we're invited to give a generous response. And the only way that I know how to give such a response is to completely let go. Richard Rohr says that this letting go is actually the necessary of dying. That the soul makes the walk through to go higher and further and deeper and longer. This is what we refer to as a darkness or seasons of unknowing of our doubt. This is what we refer to as hell. Which leads us to the second point that the author makes about suffering. The cross was Jesus' voluntary acceptance of understanding suffering as an act of total solidarity with the pain of the world. This mystery of God's love. The, the love that is initiated by God. The love that will even come down into the depths of hell and refuse to let us go. Stopping at nothing until we have been brought back up into the arms of God. The late Frank O'Connor wrote, mystery is a great embarrassment to the modern mind. Adding to that, my mentor this week said, and we have a difficult time embracing anything that we can't understand or does not completely line out without our imagination of the world. First Peter says that we have to embrace the mystery. Scripture says we have to embrace the mystery. Our belief in Easter requires us to not only embrace the mystery of God, but give ourselves over to the hard truth of death and death within this world. This is why the gospel says that God raised Jesus from the dead. Did you ever notice that? Jesus doesn't raise himself up from the dead. Scripture says that God raised this Jesus up from the dead. Death is something even Jesus could not overcome. Jesus Christ, our Savior, could not save himself without the help of God. So what makes me and you think that we can do it better than Jesus? In a society with limited spiritual skills to deal with death, our personal and collective pain. We've been reduced to lean on to countless self-help books and diets and exercise, or we're told just to work harder or get a degree or another degree or another degree or, or climb the social ladder or worse, we resort to pills and addictions or any other distractions just to get us through. And as a result of us trying to save ourselves, the first 127 days of this year, we've had 123 mass shootings in our country. 
It took 20 years for the Congress to repeal the authorization of war power for Iraq and Afghanistan. And survey after survey after survey, families are expressing their desperation about the well-being and the health of the young people that live within their household. And just a few days ago, the Surgeon General declared loneliness as an epidemic within the United States. But friends, it's time. It's time that we as a church stop being apologetic. Not to a world that's so desperately yearning for meaning and connection and care. It is time that we stop grinning and just pretending and smiling that this is what is Easter, our smiles. It's time that we start reducing Easter to, to brunches with loved ones and new dresses and golf shirts and lilies and eggs. Scripture demands more of us. Easter demands more of us. And frankly, this world is crying out demanding more of the church. It is time that we as a church in this 21st century go deeper and give Easter our total loyalty and everything that it demands of us, which is to remember our baptism of who we were and who we are and who that we are becoming. And soaking wet in our baptism waters, we humbly listen with Jesus to the cries of the world. For God saves us by transforming and changing us so that together, as a church, we follow Jesus Christ on the loose as Jesus changes the world. And there is nothing, 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 nothing And we need to apologize for doing that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.